When you contribute your fixed income deals to Refinitiv, they'll reach over half a million buy and sell side professionals around the world and be included in our industry-leading league table rankings. To ensure we're capturing your entire deal flow, visit contribute.refinitiv.com forward slash FI sign up or contact our team at contribute at refinitiv.com. Make your deal count. The Federal Reserve Board has raised the discount rate, that's the rate it charges on loans to commercial banks, to a record 14% in an effort to control the growth of the nation's money supply. The action was widely anticipated, and even before it was announced, stock prices started tumbling. In May 1981, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates to a level never seen before or since. It was harsh medicine for the U.S. economy. But with inflation in the double digits, central bankers saw no real alternative. It didn't take long for the pain to feed through. As borrowing costs shot up, companies reacted by laying off millions of workers. Before long, the largest economy in the world was plunged into its worst recession since the 1930s. A few blocks north of the Fed's office in Washington, the mood was gloomy at the World Bank as news of the rate rises came through. As one of the biggest borrowers on the planet, the hikes posed a real threat to hundreds of vital projects across the developing world. As interest rates skyrocketed, officials started to worry that many of those projects would no longer be financially viable and began desperately to search for a way to save them from the axe. This is the story of how that quest to save vital projects in the developing world ended up changing markets forever. It's the story of how the World Bank turned to a relatively unknown corner of finance and pushed it into the mainstream, helping develop the swaps market that today is linked to hundreds of trillions of dollars of assets. They felt that we were lending to countries which were corrupt. It was essentially the application of the theory of comparative advantage to financial markets. It was nothing more than that. I think the Germans in particular were concerned. They were concerned about pressure in the capital markets, I guess. But it's also the story of how one transaction would accelerate the loss of government control over financial markets. It's the story of how the World Bank helped create a monster that a generation later would bring the global economy close to collapse. I'm Gareth Gore, and this is The Syndicate from IFR. On the 1st of April 1968, Robert McNamara started a new job as president of the World Bank in Washington. It was seen as something of a demotion for the 51-year-old businessman and politician. Just a few weeks earlier, he'd been ousted as US Secretary of Defense following a series of disagreements with President Lyndon Johnson about the direction of the Vietnam War. Still, he brought with him a determination to make a difference, as penance for his role in the war, many suspected and almost immediately began working on plans to transform the institution. He saw it becoming more like a development agency than a bank, with a much bigger lending program run by a dramatically expanded staff. McNamara unveiled his vision for the World Bank at the annual meeting of its members that September. Coming into the meetings, the main topic of conversation had been the Soviet Union's invasion of Czechoslovakia a few weeks earlier. McNamara's grand plans soon dominated talk at the conference. He planned to double the amount the World Bank lent to the developing world over the next five years, and would do that 
by borrowing more than ever before. Fundraising efforts had already begun, he proudly told delegates, boasting that the bank had borrowed more in the previous 90 days alone than it had during any full year in its entire history. The news came as a shock, especially to investors who traditionally bought the World Bank's bonds. The institution was seen as financially conservative and predictable, but all that was clearly set to change. A few weeks later, the World Bank hit the bond markets for the first time since McNamara's big speech, with the sale of 80 million Swiss francs of bonds in Switzerland. The deal should have been straightforward, but it ended up being a disaster, not least for the lead banks, who were left nursing some big losses after being left with piles of unsold bonds. Word came back to McNamara that the traditional buyers of the World Bank bonds in Switzerland were deeply concerned with his plans to overhaul the institution, as he recalls here in this recording from the 1990s. The allegation by the Swiss bankers, our underwriters, was because of that goddamn fool McNamara, red-eyed socialist who, at the annual meeting, had spoken in ways that connoted development agency as opposed to bank. To be fair, it wasn't all the fault of the supposed red-eyed socialist McNamara. Foreign exchange markets had suddenly turned volatile, especially in Europe, where French President Charles de Gaulle had brought in currency controls in an effort to stabilise the franc following a summer of protests. This was 1968, remember. To make matters worse, Richard Nixon had just won the US presidential election, and his transition team was making noises about a huge reform of the global currency regime. Such ructions in the market had clearly impacted the Swiss bond deal. But McNamara knew he had to regain control. He fired his treasurer and offered the job to Eugene Rotberg, who had made a name for himself as a punchy lawyer at the Securities and Exchange Commission. Rotberg was tasked with finding the money to finance McNamara's big expansion. The World Bank was no stranger to the markets. It had sold its first bonds in 1947 and, over the years, had raised more than $6 billion through more than 100 deals in the US and Europe. But the bold new five-year plan required a step change. Rotberg, who'd been hired because he'd shown a willingness to shake things up at the SEC, had no real finance experience. He didn't let that put him off accepting the job. He was looking for someone who did not have any ties to Wall Street. He called me up. I didn't know a debit from a credit. I was quite stunned uh, that he asked me to be the treasurer. And as he put it, it uh, beats hell out of selling automobiles because he was once, as you know, the president of Ford. Uh, I thought about it for about 24 hours. To me, it was the perfect Robin Hood job. I could uh, try to uh, move money from rich countries to poor countries, and uh, I found that very attractive. When McNamara went to the bank, some say to expiate for his sins of Vietnam by addressing the issues of poverty. And the only way that you can address the issues of poverty, he felt, was to go to an institution which would lend for projects roads and highways and ports and hospitals. Uh, what he probably didn't realize was that the bank had very, very few funds from governments. 
Its capital was owned by governments, but they put in very little money. Most of the capital, therefore, callable, but never, never callable to make loans. So we had to borrow money throughout the world to get the world's savings and recycle it as an intermediary to poor countries. Given the enormous amount of money that needed to be raised, Rotberg knew he couldn't just rely on the bank's traditional investor base in the US and Europe. He would need to find new sources of cash. Within months of taking over, he sold the World Bank's first bond in Japan. That was soon followed by a series of deals in oil-exporting countries, which were building up huge reserves. After its first bond sale in Libya, the World Bank followed up with deals in Kuwait, the UAE and Venezuela. By 1973, the World Bank was borrowing $1.7 billion a year in the bond market, more than double what it borrowed in the year before Rotberg took over. The Treasury team's big push into new markets was a huge success. McNamara proudly told delegates at the annual meetings in Nairobi later that year that the bank had achieved all of the lofty goals he'd set five years earlier, confident that the bank and Rotberg's team could go even further. He announced plans to double the World Bank's lending program yet again over the next five years. Here he is talking to the conference. The difference in living standards between the rich nations and the poor nations is a gap of gigantic proportions. The industrial base of the wealthy nations is so great, and their technological capacity is so advanced, and their consequent advantage is so immense, that it is unrealistic to expect that the gap will narrow by the end of the century. Every indication is that it will continue to grow, and I don't think there's anything we can do to prevent that. But what we can do is to begin to move now to ensure that absolute poverty, as I've described it to you, utter degradation, is ended. McNamara's second five-year plan would be the largest program of financial assistance to developing countries ever undertaken. Between 1973 and 1978, the World Bank lent more than $20 billion to almost a 1,000 projects around the world. Once again, it fell to Rotberg and his team to find the money. And that wasn't always easy. As the 70s progressed, Rotberg began to get pushback from investors who were sceptical about the growth of the World Bank, particularly in the US. They felt that we were lending to countries which were corrupt, some of the institutions felt that we were lending to countries which were dictatorships on the left and the right. We were lending to countries which were competing with the United States because of their low labor force and therefore taking a lot of jobs away. There were institutions who believed that the World Bank was taking savings from the United States. With sentiment in the U.S. beginning to turn against the bank, Rutberg decided to focus on other markets. Up to that point, the U.S. had always been its main source of funding. But by the mid-70s, that began to change. The bank started to shift more and more of its borrowing to Europe. So much so that by the end of the 1970s, the bank was raising far more money in West Germany and Switzerland than it was in the U.S. The diversification strategy also had another benefit. As rates began to rise in the U.S. from 1977 onwards the World Bank was relatively unaffected. It continued to borrow at much cheaper rates in Europe, which meant loans that it made to developing countries could be done at low rates too. West Germany became especially important. By the end of the decade, 
More than a third of all the World Bank's funding was being done there. For three years running, the institution raised twice as much in Deutschmarks as it did in dollars. By the end of the 1970s, McNamara and Rotberg had truly transformed the World Bank. Although the transformation had created friction with some of its members and some parts of the capital markets. But the prowess of the institution was beyond doubt. As one of the largest borrowers in the world, it soon began to attract a new generation of young professionals who were keen to enter the world of finance, while also helping to tackle poverty. Jessica Einhorn was in her mid-30s and obsessed with finance. After studying at Princeton, the LSE and a stint in Venezuela, she'd held a few jobs across the US government and had joined the World Bank on the recommendation of Tony Solomon, a Treasury official in the Carter administration, who by then had been named president of the New York Fed. When I was in Washington and I was finishing whatever I was doing and I was going to Brookings and I asked for his advice, he said to me, you know, you should come to New York if you're interested in finance, but if you're going to stay in Washington, the best place to work would be the World Bank. And he said, this fellow, I think Gene Rotberg, has a big operation. The World Bank was, at that point, the largest borrower in the world's capital markets. The World Bank that she joined wasn't going through an easy time. In fact, by 1981, it was facing crises on several fronts. McNamara had announced his retirement. Internally, staff were getting nervous about what direction his successor would take. At the same time, the interest rate rises that had begun in the US were starting to spread across the world. In Europe, central banks increased rates to tame the inflation menace. That was bad news for the World Bank. After McNamara's huge expansion, by 1981, the institution was almost $30 billion in debt. So, as interest rates shot up, the cost of refinancing that debt began to spiral. Interest costs alone were more than $2 billion a year. Rotberg soon began to worry about the implications for the World Bank's various programmes. He wasn't allowed to lend money at a loss, so any rise in funding costs had to be passed on to those countries that were borrowing from the bank. Sooner or later, the rise in interest costs would simply be unbearable for many. Rotberg had already attempted to shield those borrowers by allowing them to borrow at a so-called blended rate, which averaged out the World Bank's borrowing costs over many years rather than charge them the latest higher rates. As rates shot up, pushing up the blended rate, he took drastic action. He stopped borrowing altogether. The bank isn't a magic institution. It doesn't have money, it can't create money, it doesn't have taxing power. So if it borrows at 8%, it has to lend at 85 If it borrows at 12 it has to lend at 125 If it borrows at 17 it has to lend at 175 There is no magic way for the bank to absorb those costs. It has to be lent to countries which would have to pay that rate. We were simply the intermediary. We could magically create money when it doesn't exist or create interest rates uh, where we borrow at 8 and lend at 5 So what we did, we had borrowed previously huge amounts of money and kept it as part of our liquidity, so we walked out of the markets. There was a period where we didn't borrow at all because we didn't want to borrow at these very high rates. That strategy worked for a while. 
but Rotberg knew that sooner or later he'd have to borrow again to replenish the cash he'd used up. The World Bank did a handful of deals in Europe, Japan, and one deal in the US where it had to pay a whopping 14% annual coupon to borrow two-year money. The team decided that such levels were unsustainable and decided to focus on borrowing in Europe, where rates were still rising but were much lower than the US. They asked the Germans if they could increase their borrowing there. What came back was a surprise. Bond said that the World Bank had already used up its quota for the year and was reluctant to increase it again. That left Rotberg in a difficult position. His bosses had already signed off on a number of big loans for projects in Mexico, China and Jamaica, and he was expected to fund those promises. Talks were also coming up to restructure huge debts in Zaire. Against that backdrop, Rotberg turned to the big investment banks for help. Despite the fact that we were using money from previous borrowings, we were increasing the amount of loans. The countries were still poor. The children were still working in their rice fields. There were no schools. People were dying of disease. Mothers were dying at birth. The children were uh, dying before the age of five. The literacy was high. We had to get the funds to build up these countries, and uh, therefore we had to borrow, even though we wanted to uh, forego the markets. And it was at that point that we were trying to figure out ways to do it, entered into discussions with Solomon Brothers, with John Rosenstrike mostly. Rosenstrike floated an idea. He had a client that had the opposite problem. It didn't want to borrow money in Europe. Instead, it wanted to pay off debts it already had there, but couldn't because they were years from maturity. Rosenstrike suggested the two of them might come to some kind of an agreement whereby the World Bank would effectively take on this debt in West Germany and Switzerland, and with it, the much lower cost of borrowing they would do a swap. At that time, swaps were a relatively new idea. Orion Bank and a few others had already done a handful of transactions, but the market was tiny, bespoke, and seen as something that was extremely niche. Rotberg and his team, desperate to find a way to keep borrowing costs low for the bank and the developing countries that borrowed from it, looked at the idea from Solomon Brothers in more detail. And the more they looked at it, the more they liked it. The client that Rosenstrike had in mind was IBM, which at the time was one of the world's biggest companies. The 70s had been a big decade for the firm. It had developed life-changing new products like the floppy disk, ATMs and magnetic stripes for bank cards. In 1981, it was gearing up for the launch of the personal computer, the PC, which would be its smallest and lowest priced computer to date. Like the World Bank, IBM had taken advantage of lower rates in Germany and Switzerland and borrowed money there the previous year. But the rise in US rates had pushed up the dollar. Since IBM had sold bonds in Europe, the mark and the Swiss franc had lost a third of their value against the greenback. For IBM, that meant in dollar terms, the amount that it owed had fallen by a third. The only problem was that it couldn't lock in that profit. The bonds were non-callable. The swap was a way around that. So what really happens is, instead of, say, 
IBM having $100 million would have to lay out to buy the Deutschmark to pay the interest in the principal, they didn't have to spend $100 million, they had to spend only $80 million because the Deutschmark had deteriorated. So here comes IBM and says, you know, we've just lost or about to lose our AAA rating. We're in enormous competition. Our profits are under pressure. How can we take that $20 million gain that we've just made, which is on our books, how can we take that $20 million into our P&L statement? And it was that which drove IBM and the uh, underwriters and the World Banks and discussions with the accountancy said, well, you have to get rid of the Deutschmark. Suppose the World Bank comes and pays your Deutschmark for you. And all of a sudden, you no longer have to pay $100 million. You have a, only an $80 million obligation, and the World Bank will pay it for you. And the accountants felt that that permitted IBM to take that $20 million profit. On paper, it made complete sense. The only problem was that Rotberg wasn't actually allowed to do such a transaction. When the World Bank statutes had been drawn up in 1944, swaps were unsurprisingly not one of the things that were discussed. What then followed were weeks of internal discussions as the Treasury team sought to persuade the bank's board and member countries. As Jessica Einhorn recalls, many of them weren't at all convinced about this outlandish new idea. We would go to these countries and we would meet the central bankers and we would meet the finance minister. I think the Germans in particular were concerned. They were concerned about pressure in the capital markets, I guess, because of inflation. But in any event, it was a big deal. Cyrus Ardalan, who joined the World Bank Treasury team after stints overseeing projects in Yugoslavia and Afghanistan, was soon tasked with helping overcome some of those misgivings. One major issue was counterparty risk. The World Bank was used to lending to developing countries, where any problems could be sorted out at the political level. But the concept of entering into a big commitment with a company that could possibly go under was completely new. A lot of thought went into this because it was something which was very, very new. Uh, we had to look at exactly what the risks of this were and what the reputational issues might be surrounding this thing. I think swaps had been done in a more informal way in the market. So this was probably not technically the first ever, ever swap in, in, in the narrowest sense of the word. But I think if you look at it in terms of a transaction which gave credibility and which was publicized in the way that it was by two institutions like IBM and obviously the World Bank, there was nothing that had been done like this. So a lot of thought had to go into this thing, particularly on the reputational side. And after going through that, we gained comfort that, uh, in, in fact, yes, it's something which did make sense. It was essentially the application of the theory of comparative advantage to financial markets. There was nothing more than that. You've got somebody else more efficient in one market, you're more efficient in other markets, so you basically trade. Mm -hmm. So that was the basic underlying logic behind it and one which we felt was compelling. The other thing was to make sure the counterparties were all of the highest quality and having IBM on the other side was very, very critical to us. The board finally gave the green light passing a resolution that would allow the Treasury team to take on counterparty risk with commercial banks and AAA-rated companies. But the board gave Rutberg and his team one big condition. They needed to guard against the risk that IBM went bust. The last thing the bank wanted was to end up with a massive loss from the transaction. So, the World Bank took out an insurance contract against IBM going bankrupt. All this back and forth took weeks, 
and worryingly for Rotberg, the exact conditions which had made the swap possible were beginning to unravel in the markets. As the US economy tipped into recession and speculation began to grow about possible interest rate cuts, the German mark and Swiss franc staged a big rally against the dollar, just as the World Bank and IBM were deep in negotiations. Both currencies would rise by around 20% in the weeks that followed. Rotberg soon realized that the movements in the currency markets risked killing off the deal. As the Deutschmark began to appreciate, the IBM profit began to disappear. So there was enormous concern we won't be able to do the transaction because it won't be tradable to IBM anymore. Because they won't capture their $20 million profit, it's now down to $15 million, or whatever it was. So we were concerned. But it also told us something else. It told us that here you had a situation where markets move, and up until then it never affected the balance sheet on the liability side. Now it does, because you have a vehicle to capture or lose. So we were worried that it wouldn't be done in time, but we finally got it done in time. They got a decent profit out of it. That epiphany about ructions in the market creating havoc with the balance sheet would later come back to haunt the bank. But the priority then was to get the deal done, and fast, before the currency gains were completely eliminated. Rotberg began stage one of the plan. Remember, this was a swap. So if the World Bank was going to pay IBM's liabilities in West Germany and Switzerland, then IBM would have to pay the bank's liabilities elsewhere. The two sides had agreed that the World Bank would sell a bond in the US, which IBM would pay off. It didn't mind the fact that interest rates were high. The company was swimming in cash, and it earned more than enough on that cash to cover the interest payments. On the 25th of August 1981, the World Bank priced a two-tranche deal in the US. It sold $210 million of five-year bonds and $80 million of seven-year bonds to investors. Both tranches came with an eye-watering 16% coupon, more than double what it would have paid to borrow at similar maturities in the German or Swiss bond markets. But the World Bank didn't mind. It wouldn't be paying off the bonds. That would fall to IBM. At this stage, the swap wasn't public knowledge. And the World Bank chose not to tell any of the bond investors who were buying the bonds anything about it. We told the investor, we're issuing dollar bonds. And even though we knew that we weren't going to keep them more than a split second, you have our obligation, you have our word, you have our signature. They thought that we were going to pay them directly. We did pay them directly. The dollars did go directly to that insurance company. The dollars that we borrowed did go directly to the retirement system. As far as they knew, they got a check from us. What they didn't know is the reason they got a check from us is because as a millisecond before they got the check from us, IBM gave us the money. But the obligation was still the World Bank's. That obligation never disappeared in the swap. Once it had the cash from investors, the World Bank immediately exchanged them for marks and francs so it wouldn't be exposed to any further movements in the currency markets, and so that it had the money to pay off the IBM debts as per the agreement. The deal had been a success. On paper, the World Bank had borrowed at the much lower rate, which would allow it to lend out to developing countries at lower rates too. 
A few weeks later, at the annual conference, the swap was a huge topic of conversation, especially amongst the bankers present, who all wanted to know more. When all of the underwriters, people, competed to be the lead banker for us in whatever market we were in, and all of the bankers came in for appointments, I think in half-hour slots, and we would have... I don't know, more than 20 different banks that we would meet with a hectic few days. We were meeting with them one-on-one and trying and describing to them what a currency swap was and how it worked. They had not known, they hadn't heard of it yet, or they had heard of it, but they hadn't gotten into it. Interest in these swaps soon exploded, and the World Bank found itself inundated with requests to do similar transactions. Within weeks of the deal with IBM, it was approached by the US investment bank Morgan Guarantee and French rival Paribas. They proposed that the World Bank effectively do the IBM deal again, borrow in dollars and swap them into German marks and Swiss francs. But there was a twist. This time there would be no IBM. In fact, there'd be no borrower at all on the other side. While the IBM deal got all the attention... It was actually this second deal with Morgan Guarantee and Paribas that would truly revolutionise the market. Doing the swap gave the banks exposure to a cash flow of German marks and Swiss francs that they could use as a hedge or to service their clients. It gave them access to virtual currency flows without the need to raise marks or francs in the bond markets and without the headache of holding on to the cash. The World Bank agreed. It didn't know it at the time, but the deal would have significant implications for financial markets. Nothing would be the same again. Here's Cyrus Ardalan. The first swap transaction was done. People began to really focus on this, particularly with the publicity that the World Bank and IBM had given to that market. As you'd expect, uh, the investment banks and the big commercial banks at that time uh, began to look at this very, very closely, and they realized, look, this actually does make a huge amount of sense. There really is an an opportunity here. So the market really began, and I think that's probably the greatest contribution of that swap, was that it really provided the type of credibility and focus that was necessary to get this market really going. So following that, we began to get approached by more and more financial institutions giving us transactions. And it was really at that point that we began to say, look, this is an activity which looks as if it's going to have legs and it's going to continue and grow. In its first year of doing swaps, the World Bank did several deals totaling $758 million. The following year, it did 49 transactions, totaling $1.7 billion. The year after that, it did 44 deals, totaling $1.3 billion. By the next year, it was doing 50 deals a year, totaling $1.4 billion. By 1986, the SWAPS program was saving the World Bank and, critically, the developing countries around the world that were borrowing from it, more than $300 million a year in interest costs. The expansion And the savings soon started to turn heads, including in some unlikely places. Ardalan recalls how he, Gene Rotberg and Jessica Einhorn were invited to China in the mid-80s to teach the communist regime about this new innovation at the heart of the capitalist financial system. Gene called us and said, look, we've had an invitation from the Central Bank of China 
to visit China and provide them uh, with a seminar on swaps, on what swaps are, uh, why it is that the World Bank utilizes swaps, and just the mechanics of, of swap transactions. We flew to Beijing at that time, and really at that time, it's 1986, uh, it's, it's a China which is, as you can imagine, radically different than what we have today. It was, uh, I think the hallmark of uh, Beijing at that time was bicycles and certainly not cars or skyscrapers or anything like that. And we had a two-day seminar where we had, it must have been about 20 or 30 people sitting in classroom formation at the central bank, very much dressed up in, in their traditional Chinese clothing at that time, and making, you know, judiciously making notes on what we're doing, etc. And it really, for me, it was, you could see the, the enormous interest on the part of the Chinese who attended that to understand and to learn about what it is that we're trying to do. The fact that this swaps program caught the attention of communist China shows just what an impact it had. The first to take advantage were the big banks, who were keen to hedge their exposures. But soon, corporates dived into the market to hedge their interest rate, currency or commodity risks. By the year 2000, the notional outstanding value of the swaps market crossed the $100 billion mark for the first time. Over the next few years, growth was even stronger. But it didn't take long for problems to begin to surface. These new markets were beyond the control of governments and regulators, and before long, excesses began to develop. The collapse of long-term capital management, the scandals at Enron, and the 2008 global financial crisis have all been linked to the wild west of the swaps market, with the latter prompting sweeping regulatory reforms. Even the World Bank had problems. As interest rates came down in the late 1990s, some of its swaps activity began to lose money. Today, Rotberg has mixed feelings about the market that he and his team helped create. He feels that the 1981 deal with IBM was, in some ways, the beginning of the end of government control over the capital markets. My main concern at the time was about the next bond transaction. I wasn't looking at the future but within a year, I began to worry that the expertise was enormous in the hands of the investment bankers and, to some extent, the industrialized countries. They had tremendous knowledge and expertise. The CFTC, the SEC, and the Fed had no idea what was going on. They had no idea. They had, didn't have the expertise. These transactions are unlike futures or options, which are traded every day. None of them are being recorded anywhere. They're, they're even off the books. To this day, there's an enormous gap between what the private sector knows about these transactions and how the markets really operate and the knowledge base of the regulatory agencies. That cost them dearly in 2008 and 2009. But to this day, it exists. And it's something to worry about. So, that's the story of the World Bank swap with IBM. Thank you for listening. This episode of The Syndicate was researched, written and presented by me, Gareth Gore. The editor was Matthew Davis. This has been a fresher production for IFR. When you contribute your fixed income deals to Refinitiv, they'll reach over half a million buy and sell side professionals around the world and be included in our industry-leading league table rankings. To ensure we're capturing your entire deal flow, visit contribute.refinitiv.com forward slash fi sign up or contact our team at contribute at refinitive.com make your deal count